The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature. Okay, hello everyone. How are you? I hope you are well. This is one of the hardest years I can remember. Maybe the hardest. What happened to the queen and that honest horribilis she had? Three of her children had their marriages fall apart and her palace caught on fire. Well, America is never one for second place finishes, are they? I think they've topped the queen. We just keep falling further and further into I don't know what despair, the abyss. But we also have room for hope. Have to admit it's getting better. Can't get no worse. Somewhere in there, somewhere in here is room for hope. I'll probably die an optimist, as one of my friends said. Die. My final breath, my final exhalation will be me hoping that maybe things aren't as bad as they seem. So let's do what we can to cheer ourselves up. Steady the ship, as it were. We need to keep our wits about us, don't we? Keep some calm in our lives. Keep some reason for feeling uplifted. Here's what we have today. This is exciting. We have a wonderful excerpt from a wonderful novel read by the author herself, Diksha Basu. It comes from our friends at the Podglomerate and the Storybound Project. So let's do this. We'll do some listener emails, which also cheers me up. The listeners to this little podcast, I kind of can't believe it sometimes, how wonderful they are. You are. You hear me? Wonderful. Wonderful, wonderful. The world can be good again, people. We just need to keep working as hard as we can to make it better. So let's hear some listener emails and then bring out our special guest with her fiction, Diksha Basu. But first, a quick break. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts.
First up, an email from Zandra. Subject, a new, new listener. Thank you, dear Mr. Wilson. This feels strange, this message. Anyway, I'll leave it regardless. Your honesty is striking. Very brave. You say it how it is, how it feels for you. To hear about your experiences in reading and in life is inspiring. I like that you work hard and that you can't help but to let what you encounter in. I think the world would be better if there were more people like you in it. I hope that doesn't get brushed off as just flattery. It may be to some degree, but there's truth also. Thank you for your work and for your scrupulous referencing of sources. I want to tell you something. I want to let you know how wonderful my experience of listening to the History of Literature podcast is. I'm not sure how to say it. I never listened to podcasts before. This is my first. I've laughed and cried. Mostly cried. TBH. <laughs> oh, poor Zandra. Let me start that again. I've laughed and cried, mostly cried, TBH, for your enthusiasm, for the hint that you give, the same hint which all my favorite authors and novelists give towards something like communion, that thing that lets you know that you're not alone. I don't think literature is dying, BTW. I don't think that you think that it is either. I might interpret you wrong, but how could it die when there is no sufficient replacement? There might be at some point, but as of now, there isn't. Parentheses inertia. Oh, that's an interesting theory. This sounds like some s silly, stupid fangirl letter, I guess, since that's what it is. I'm a fan. I just ordered Aristotle's Poetics, and I'm reading James Joyce's A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, a best first novel, according to some, and it feels like reading music. It's taking me forever to read, because I have to keep going back over the sentences. Gah, in a good way. Smiley face. Ops, this is getting long. I could talk for ages. Is that ops? Ops? Ops, this is getting long. I could talk for ages. Hope you're good and thank you again and again. I feel lucky. I have lots to listen to yet. Smiley face. All the best, Zandra. Well, Zandra, thank you for this enthusiastic email. I was very glad to hear from you. This is awesome. You made my day. And you are on your way. Aristotle's Poetics and James Joyce's Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. You're diving right in. Both of those will give you much to think about and much to explore. They're good for stretching. I hope you enjoy them. Is literature dying? I haven't visited that question recently. I have to say I've been wondering if this podcast is tricking me into thinking that it's not. I'll get so excited that we've had three million downloads, which is... Nothing to sneeze at. And then I'll see that a video of a monkey sneezing has gotten 20 million downloads in a day. And that's nothing to sneeze at either. I never thought literature would disappear altogether or that there wouldn't be some passionate supporters. I just wondered if it was sort of an endangered species. Will it go the way of radio drama? That's not gone altogether. It can be revived at any time. It's still there. I know there are still fans, but it's still, it's not the same, is it? It's kind of outmoded. Vaudeville, same thing. How many people do you know who read books, and not just fiction, but real literature? How many people do you know who spend more time reading those books than on social media? And which is growing and which is shrinking? I think the jury is still out. But in the meantime, we'll do what we can here at the History of Literature. Isn't this a day for optimism? 
I said it was at the beginning. So I am so glad to hear, Zandra, that you're enjoying the show. And I love your enthusiasm for all this. Keep it up. Thank you very much for sending me that dose of sunshine. Email number two. Subject, Updike's Rules for Reviewers. This is from Michael. Hi, Jack. I'm a big fan of the podcast and enjoyed your most recent episode on mean reviews. As an avid John Updike fan, I was hoping you'd touch on Wallace's absolutely brutal and well-deserved review of Toward the End of Time, which is even worse than Wallace makes it sound. (laughs) Wow. With that in mind, I wondered if you'd read Updike's own rules for reviewers, which I find to be quite sensible and reasonable. I try to let them guide me when I write book reviews. He provides a link here. Updike was a great reviewer, in my opinion, with a huge number of reviews filling the bulk of six very large volumes of occasional prose. I think it was Louis Menand who said that he read like he was cramming for a test on total world knowledge. Life goals, as I'm sure you'll agree. Thanks again for the show, Michael. Michael, I agree that Updike was a great reviewer. He truly did stand out in that area. Such a smart guy, such a good writer. Books gave him something to write about. Maybe that's why it was helpful. The ideas in the books were replacements for the ideas that he didn't always have. I should have cited this in the Hatchet Jobs episode. Would have been a nice accompaniment to talk about Updike as a reviewer. But let's go through them here. Here they are. Number one, try to understand what the author wished to do and do not blame him for not achieving what he did not attempt. That's good advice. Number two, give enough direct quotation, at least one extended passage of the book's prose so the review's reader can form his own impression, can get his own taste. Hmm. That's more good advice. That's not necessarily a rule, I'd say. Kind of a good rule of thumb, depending on where you're writing the review, that may or may not be possible. But if we're talking about ideal reviews, yes, I think that's good. Give an extended passage of the book's prose. It also helps when you're reviewing the kind of books Updike was reviewing. If you're reviewing a lot of literary fiction, it makes sense to include the prose so the reader can form their own impression. Number three, confirm your description of the book with quotation from the book, if only phrase long, rather than proceeding by fuzzy praise. Hmm, that's an interesting one. I wonder what he was thinking of there. Not sure that's necessary. Uh, it's, it seems like kind of a nice stylistic choice. Not sure how much that benefits the book review, but okay, I'll go with it. Number four, go easy on plot summary and do not give away the ending. Okay. Number five, if the book is judged deficient, cite a successful example along the same lines from the author's oeuvre or elsewhere. Try to understand the failure. Sure it's his and not yours? That's very good. Anything that makes the reviewer turn on themselves. Take a look at themselves. Look at yourself in the mirror, reviewers. Why do you think this is deficient? Are you sure it's not because... Here's an example. Sometimes reviewers will say that something is a cliche. Or that, oh, this has been done before. Oh, aren't we getting tired of this? And it turns out that you're actually talking about the first person who did it. Isn't that interesting? If you're talking about a pioneer 
and you're attributing to them all of the flaws of a cliche. Well, actually, what happened was that person influenced so many people who came after. Now, you can say that in your review. Say, maybe we're getting tired of this. Maybe we've absorbed it. Maybe it's so infected us, we can no longer view it as new. But to to attribute it to the original author as being a cliche, you get what I mean. Ah, not finished yet. Updike says, to these concrete five might be added a vaguer sixth, having to do with maintaining a chemical purity in the reaction between product and appraiser. Do not accept for review a book you are predisposed to dislike or committed by friendship to like. Do not imagine yourself a caretaker of any tradition, an enforcer of any party standards, a warrior in any ideological battle, a corrections officer of any kind. Review the book, not the reputation. Now, that's great. I like that one better than the first five. Updike. These are great guidelines. Reviewers should hold themselves to a high standard. If not following these necessarily, at least replacing them with something equivalently good. Setting your own agenda aside is crucial, especially when trying to assess recent works. If it's Moby Dick or The Odyssey, great. Have fun with it. Those books will survive you. Take all the shots you want at Madame Bovary and Anna Karenina. But if it's a new work by a new author, make sure you're giving it the consideration it deserves. You might be wrong. And the reason for you being wrong can be very revealing. Michael, thank you for the email and thanks for the suggestion. Subject, mummy. OMG, the mummy story had me giggling helplessly this morning and now I'm listening to the Storybound episode and every time you mention mummy, I am unable to quell the giggles. The cat is concerned, or maybe being a cat, he understands mummy's mysterious message. (laughs) This podcast is seriously the only thing keeping me sane in the swirling madness and plagues. Thank you, you incredibly witty and knowledgeable man. And amongst the laughter, you've taught me so much. Be well, so grateful, Dorothy Ann. Ah, yes, the mummy story that was... Insane. Well, Dorothy Ann, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I'm glad you're still sane, as we are all trying to be, including the cat. The cat being concerned about us is probably the sanest response imaginable. Hey, humans, if you're going to hang around all day, at least stop laughing. You're driving me crazy. Okay. Thanks, Dorothy Ann, for the nice email, the very kind words. Let's stop there. And turn to some real literature. Storybound is a radio theater program designed for the podcast age. Host to see, this is what I was talking about. A revival. This was good stuff, people. Radio theater. And everyone listened to it. And then everyone moved on. And they forgot how good it was. Well, Storybound is here to bring it back. A reminder. Having these... It's one thing to have the history of literature in your ears. That's great. But to have it in your ears, to have a radio theater program with original music composed for each episode, that's another thing altogether. This is hosted by Jude Brewer, and it features the voices of today's literary icons reading their essays, poems, and fiction. In this episode... Diksha Basu reads an excerpt from her novel, The Windfall, with sound design and music composition from Caitlin Convery. 
I hope you enjoy it. This is Diksha Basu reading an excerpt from my novel, The Windfall. Welcome to Storybound, presented by Lit Hub Radio and the Pod Agglomerate. I'm your host, Jude Brewer. Coming up in one minute is a story told by Diksha Basu with original composition by Caitlin Convery. Now that the new car is here, will you please take it the next time you go to Gurgaon, Mr. Cha asked his wife over breakfast the next morning. He felt bad when he saw her return the previous evening sweating, with her sari crumpled and hair escaping from the tight low bun she always wore it in. I'm not comfortable driving it, Mrs. Cha said. Besides, we need to get the car blessed before we use it. Mrs. Cha was sick of being nervous. She double-locked all the doors and windows before bed every night. She checked the vault at the bank at least once a month, and she had even joined a ladies' investment club and taken their advice and put a significant amount of money into gold bricks. The wealth was exciting, but it also made her nervous. And now, with this flashy car and big move to Gurgaon, she was having sleepless nights. They needed God on their side now more than ever. Don't be silly, Mr. Cha said, pouring hot milk on his bowl of oats. Such a shiny Mercedes is already blessed. I'm not wasting time taking it to the temple for the Pujari to bless it. Did you happen to see the neighbors yesterday? No, I didn't see anyone, Mr. Cha said. Sometimes I wonder if all the houses in Gurgaon are abandoned. But listen, I'm telling you, we're attracting the evil eye. It'll take less than an hour. We have to do this. Bad luck is coming. Mrs. Cha hardly went to the temple these days herself. Last time she went, about three months ago, there was a hand-painted sign that advertised Rupees 25 for special exam time prayer. Sometimes God's home resembled the local shop that sold rice and flour by the kilo. As much as she loved the feel of the temple, lately she always left thinking it made religion feel too much like a transaction. She still tried to go every few months for the well-being of her family, even though Mr. Cha and Rupak never accompanied her. Do you think the neighbors might be foreigners? Mr. Cha asked. I've heard that some of the multinationals own houses in Gurgaon, and the international workers come and stay for long stretches of time. Imagine if we move in next to an expat from America. I've always wanted to organize a 4th of July party. 
How come Americans get called expats, but if we move to America, we're called immigrants? Mrs. Cha asked. Tomato, tomato, Bindu. No need to find reason to be sensitive about everything. Anil, you turn everything into a joke, but I'm not comfortable with all this change. If we offer just a bit extra, I'm sure the pujari will be more than happy to bless the car. I'll pick up the coconut on the way myself. Are you mad? I will not drive the car through these wretched narrow lanes, and I absolutely will not have the pujari's filthy hands touching vermilion to the car and the coconut. Ugh! Who knows what it'll do to the paint job? Not a chance. The car stays in the garage, Mister Cha said. End of discussion. No, no, it isn't the end of the discussion, Missus Cha said, standing up and collecting her empty bowl and glass. She picked up her husband's bowl while he was still holding the last spoonful up to his mouth. Forget the car. We'll take the keys and get them blessed. Mr. Jha ate his last bite and put down his newspaper. He looked at his wife. Stubborn woman. Fine. It had been what had attracted him to her in the first place. The first time he had met her, with his mother and aunt with him and her parents with her, at the end of the meeting she had said, "I'd like to meet him alone next time, please." Mr. Cha still remembered how the older generation had gone silent in response to her request. There's nothing you can't say in front of us, her mother had said to her then. That's true, his mother had added. A marriage is a marriage of the families. But it's really a marriage between us, and I'd like to meet with him alone next time, please, Mrs. Cha had repeated calmly. Mr. Cha had laughed and said, "I'd like that too," and their parents had had no option but to agree. The following week, Mr. Cha met Mrs. Cha for ice cream sundaes at the Nirulas in Kanot Place. Her father dropped her off and browsed in the shops downstairs for an hour exactly. Mr. Cha had ordered chocolate sauce drizzled on his sundae, and Mrs. Cha hadn't, so he offered her a taste of his. She said no at first, but then leaned in and had a spoonful when the hour was almost over. So Mr. Cha was not surprised when his mother came to him the next afternoon and said, "The girl has said yes." This impending move to Gurgaon had not been easy on her. Getting the car blessed was the least he could do. The spare keys only, he said, and we won't spend more than half an hour there. The incense makes my eyes burn. Answer me one thing, Bindu," Mister Jha said, bending down to untie his laces outside the main entrance of the temple. How come, even as Hindus with all our gods, we say we believe in God, singular? He took off both his shoes and held them out to Mrs. Cha. And here, I don't trust all these godly types. Put my shoes in your purse," he said. "Just leave them there," Mrs. Cha said. "Nobody is going to steal your shoes. These are from Woodlands. Look at how nice the leather is. Some beggar will steal them and won't even know what they're worth," Mr. Cha said. "Gods or God, Bindu? Which one is the right term?" I don't know, Anil. I, I suppose it's the collective idea of God in many different representations and forms. So you can say either. And if you're so worried about your shoes, don't leave them out here. Go and deposit them. They have a shoe check, and you would know that if you came a bit more often. Mrs. Cha said, dropping a ten-rupee note into a small metal can belonging to a man with leprosy who was sitting in his wheelchair at the entrance to the temple. Ten rupees, Mr. Cha said. That's what beggars get these days, while the world is in recession. Absurd. He wandered off to find the shoe deposit. 
The summer heat was getting on his nerves. The heat in Delhi summers didn't just come from the air. It radiated up from the ground and came off the walls of the building and pushed you from every direction, making it difficult to move. What was the point of all this new money if he couldn't escape the blistering midday temperatures? It should be possible, Mr. Jha thought, to have a small, portable, air-conditioned plexiglass cubicle built to walk around in. After all, he had had a shower installed in the Gurgaon bathroom so he would no longer have to use a bucket filled with water and a mug to pour it over his body. So maybe he could have a similar contraption, completely sealed and cool, to take everywhere with him. It would make life a lot more pleasant. Maybe, maybe something with wheels. But then that would just be a car. Sir, 20 rupees for the bin and 50 rupees for the individual, the bare-chested man with the red tikka was saying to him. The shoe handler, who was sitting behind a counter with burning incense and loud ragas, looking like God's own guard. 50 rupees to store my shoes for 20 minutes? Mr. Jha walked away. He had not made his money by being cheated out of small amounts. He saw his wife standing near the entrance with her fair feet naked against the hot, dirty asphalt. They're robbing people blind with the shoe check-in, he said. I'll leave one shoe outside the temple and keep one in my back pocket. Nobody will steal a single shoe. You can't carry a leather shoe into the temple, Anil, Mrs. Cha said. Why not? You're carrying a leather purse. They entered the main foyer of the temple and the sudden oasis of peace and quiet silenced them both. It was built in a way to maximize the cross breeze and the air smelled of incense. Temple goers all chimed the large bell that hung on the main door to announce their arrival to the gods. You are listening to Storybound. And now for a short break. And now we return from our break. Temple goers all chimed the large bell that hung on the main door to announce their arrival to the gods. A few priests sat scattered on the ground around the periphery wearing white dhotis with the Brahmin thread crossing against their bare chests. Everyone was barefoot and quiet. Where is the temple in Gurgaon? Mr. Jha whispered. He realized that he had never seen one there before. Did rich people not need temples anymore? Or maybe it was more fashionable to go to church these days. I'm not sure, Mrs. Cha said, but more and more people have prayer rooms in their own homes, and you can call a pujari home, depending on what you're praying for. I was reading about how some of these rich industrialists have puja parties in their homes that would put the biggest temples to shame. What with gold-embossed invitations and return gifts for a Ganesh puja? Just imagine. Interesting, Mr. Cha said. Maybe we should do that. <laughs> don't be ridiculous. You don't even like coming to the temple, Mrs. Cha said. We don't need to copy everything other people in Gurgaon do. Mr. Cha had never heard of a puja party, but now he was intrigued. 
you could probably be as lavish and show off as much as you wanted if you used God as an excuse. He followed his wife in toward the sanctum sanctorum. It's so nice and cool in here, Mrs. Cha said, even without air conditioning. She was relieved to feel the cool, clean temple floor that felt like silk beneath her feet. Doesn't look like God is doing any of these people much good. Any of the gods, Mr. Cha whispered to his wife as a man with a white bandage covering one eye walked past them. Well, you don't know what state he'd be in if he didn't come to the temple, Mrs. Cha said. Hmm, maybe she was right, Mr. Cha thought. He had been very fortunate so far, it was risky to offend the gods. Maybe he should have left the shoes with the Brahmin shoe attendant after all. He certainly shouldn't have a leather shoe in his back pocket right now. He would put some extra money into the donation bowl when his wife wasn't looking. When nobody was looking, the gods would notice that he hadn't done it for any kind of human credit and would be particularly appreciative. The silence seemed to get louder as they got closer to Lord Krishna's shrine. You could tell this was the main god because the blue idol was nearly six feet tall and stood gracefully in his signature pose with one foot bent in front of the other and his flute raised to his lips. His pedestal was a deep red and the yellow of his dhoti matched the yellow of the flute. It was the busiest part of the temple, but also the most peaceful. The priest's assistant was carrying the lit dia through the crowds of believers, all of whom were passing their hands over the flame and then over their own heads to receive God's light. Mr. Cha waited his turn. He wanted God's light. But because he hadn't done this in years, he moved his hand too close to the flame and then screamed in pain as the flame licked his hand. Everyone turned to look. Why must you always make a scene? You don't take anything seriously, Mrs. Cha said, smiling. Her husband was a self-made man. Relying on God was a comfort, not a career. She put her hands together, closed her eyes, bowed her head, and thanked God for finding her a good husband. At the same time, Mr. Cha, with his hands pressed together, eyes closed and head bowed, was also thanking God for finding him a good spouse. He rarely visited temples. He never followed rituals. He had a leather shoe in his back pocket and he regularly ate beef, although, in his defense, he'd heard that the beef in India was actually buffalo and those aren't sacred. But thanks to having a wife who truly believed and prayed for him, he had managed to find success. Maybe it hadn't all been just a result of hard work and good luck. Maybe it had been because of his wife's prayers. Do we ask the Pujari to bless the keys here? Mr. Chow whispered. I'm not too sure. Maybe you can just take the keys and hold them up to your head near the main shrine. I'm not sure if we should disturb him, Mrs. Chow said. The priest was standing just a few feet away and looked about as trustworthy as their real estate agent and better fed than any of the gods here. It wasn't easy to trust someone with visible gold caps on his teeth and rings on most of his fingers. And seeing him now, she was reminded again of why she came to the temple less and less these days. 
Now that we've come all the way here, may as well get the pujari to actually bless the keys, Mr. Cha said. I don't want to go home without doing it and then have you blaming me and saying I'm impatient and whatnot. I'm just happy you agreed to come, Mrs. Cha said. I'm sure God will also be happy. Let's just give a small donation and go home. You're giving donations for a blessing? The priest walked over to the Jhas to ask. What would you like to have blessed, you know, with the moon in the fifth quarter? It's an auspicious day today. He had been listening. He was always listening for the word donation. If this couple handed him the donation, he would be able to pocket it. But if they put it in the donation box, it would go directly to the temple's main management. Unfortunately, priests did not work on commission. Our new car, Mr. Cha said. Oh, nothing, Mrs. Cha quickly added. A new car? The priest said, a new car must be blessed. You have done well, praise God. People these days, they come to me only with misfortune upon misfortune. God has been kind to you. It was good of you to come to me. Where is the car? Have you brought a coconut or should I get one? No, no need, no need, Mrs. Cha said. We just came to pay our respects to God. Thank you for taking the time to speak to us. This is more than enough. But Bindu, we've come all this way and he's being so generous, Mr. Cha said. Let's at least get the keys blessed. We couldn't bring the car, but we brought the keys. Well, said the priest, eyeing the unfinished peace sign symbol of the Mercedes car keys in Mr. Jha's hands. I can bless the keys here, but if you would like, for just a small amount, a donation, I can come to your home and do a prayer for the actual car. Just the keys will do, Mrs. Jha said. The priest took the keys and said he would take them to the back directly near the idol and sprinkle them with holy water and have them blessed. Right here is fine, Mrs. Cha added. The evening prayer rush will start soon and I don't want to delay you. Mrs. Cha did not want him taking the keys out of their sight. She had been hearing about a series of crimes in Delhi lately in which thieves apparently took quick imprints of keys in bars of soap and then created copies of the keys and stole things effortlessly. She was not going to fall victim to a key-copying priest. Bindu, Mr. Cha whispered, now why are you causing a scene? This is why we came. Let's get the keys blessed. We are getting the keys blessed, Mrs. Cha said, here in front of us, right now. But if the keys can get closer to God, we should let them, Mr. Cha said. You be quiet, Mrs. Cha said. You have a leather shoe in your pocket. Now let's just finish up here. Mr. Jha took out a hundred rupee note from his wallet, but before he could place it in the priest's donation bowl, his wife snatched it out of his hand and walked toward the locked wooden donation box near the idol. I'll just put it in directly, she said to the priest. Why increase your work? She looked over her shoulder, saw her husband busy talking to the priest, put the hundred rupee bill in her wallet, took out a fifty rupee bill and slipped it into the slot of the locked donation box. Fifty was a lot, but at least now it was going directly to the temple management. Outside the temple, back in the hot sun, on the dirty asphalt, Mr. Jha felt rejuvenated. He had gotten the priest's cell phone number and would find out more about a prayer room in Gurgaon. He took his right shoe out of his back pocket, put it on and limped over to find his left shoe. Mr. Cha picked it up, placed his left foot gingerly in it, flexed his toes against the soft leather, and stood up satisfied. God would protect them. 
Behind him, Mrs. Cha also slipped her feet into her sandals, which were hot from the sun, and felt relieved that they had come to the temple. Even if parts of the temple were getting more and more commercial lately, it was still the home of the gods, and it was wise to hedge their bets. They would be safer now, and despite not paying extra for the exam time prayers, she was certain that God would look after her son across the world in America.
This story was an excerpt read by Diksha Basu from her book, The Windfall. The music for this episode was composed by Caitlin Convery. You should go look up her live Rye Room sessions on YouTube. Just search for Caitlin Convery, Rye Room. That's R-Y-E, Rye Room. Or you can find her 2015 album, Unarmed, on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you prefer to stream your music. We also want to thank Isabel Mendia and Adam Eaglin of The Cheney Agency, and Cheryl Bernadine and Mikey McCleary at Bay Music House for engineering the recording with Diksha. Storybound is mixed, produced, and hosted by me, Jude Brewer. Our executive producers are Jeff Umbro of The Podglomerate and Justin Alvarez of LitHub. This show's theme was developed with the help of James Cook. You can find his music under the name Grain Table. Want to tell us what you think of the show? Well, you can find us on Twitter at StoryboundPod, or you can tweet at me directly at Jude Brewery. New episodes are released every Tuesday. Next week, we will hear a story from Caitlin Dottie with original composition provided by Stephanie Strain. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe.